Hi friends, welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Sarah Wilkie. This episode is a bit different. I was attending the Reconciling Ministries Network convocation a couple of weeks ago in Charlotte, North Carolina, and had the opportunity to host a live interview with Sarah Wilkie, who has an incredible story. She's a part of the Wilkie family, which has uh, deep roots and a legacy um, in United Methodism in the States, particularly as it relates to Disciple Bible Study. But I just need you to know that this is definitely one of those moments that uh, Derek's lack of planning uh, really takes center stage a little bit. Um, well, actually, the interview takes center stage. Um, so we're using an open air mic um, in this small room with some friends listening on. And so you're going to hear a lot of background noise. Um, and, and yeah, but this is such a great interview. And we really only got started. So there's going to be another interview with Sarah Wilkie where we talk a little bit more about her story and hear some of her thoughts on the future of United Methodism. And so I hope that you enjoy this live interview um, of Bar of the Conference with Sarah Wilkie. It was so good. And even with all of the lack of planning, I just thought that you all would want to hear it. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen in to this live interview with Sarah Wilkie. Friends, I uh, want to present to you uh, Sarah Wilkie, um, who is a mentor to me um, and a friend and um, just an incredible leader within the United Methodist Church. And so I'm really excited um, to have you, Sarah, on the podcast. I just, um, when Jan and I were talking about um, who might I interview um, live here at um, our main convocation, um, there were a list of three people and Sarah Wilkie was number one. And and uh, Jan was like, no, that's perfect. That's, that's perfect. And so I was really grateful that you were willing to join me. Um, uh, on this live podcast um, with a great group of friends in the room as well. Um, and so, so um, Sarah, um, I always start out these interviews um, really kind of asking about the beginning, um, how you became a United Methodist Christian, how God's provenient grace um, is acted in your life to bring you into our church. Um, and so I'd just love to hear some of that story. Yeah. So, um, you know, I baptized in from infancy, right? So my father's United Methodist clergy, and uh, grew up in the parsonage, mm -hmm. and um, I think that's that's the beginning. Your your faith, you have to claim as as the, uh, you have to claim your own well mm -hmm. and dig your own well sometimes, uh, and not just live off your ancestors. Uh, but I I think um, my my faith was nurtured, and I have to say not only how I became a United Methodist Christian, but I've stayed a United Methodist Christian is, mm. is probably the second part of that that's um, important to me. But in the pews were people who, when they gave, the, you know, when the congregation contributes to the baptismal vow um, and says that we will help to raise this child in a way that leads to life eternal, 
um, there are people who believe that yeah. and yeah. who live that. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in pews, in churches where the people in the pews really nurtured through mm -hmm. uh, Bible school and Sunday school and uh, uh, church choir, youth choir, um, camp. Oh my gosh, camp counselors. Uh, we, we, we just, just the people who, and I've been a camp counselor, y'all. It is not my call. <laughs> it is not my call. And so I, it makes me so grateful for the people that did do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, I stayed a United Methodist because of the people who nurtured me and continue to nurture me to this day and pray for me and believe in me. I also was raised in a home. I will say I got frustrated as a preacher's kid with some Sunday school teachers who, you know, some, bless us, we're all just lay people doing our best. But I, I've, had it, I've had it said to me, well, you're the preacher's kid. You should know the answer to that. And I said, my parents don't teach this curriculum to us every day before we come to church on <laughs> right, Sunday. Right. They live their faith. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was grateful that I grew up in a home where the scripture was so precious mm -hmm. and so cherished. Um, but not as a weapon, but as a plowshare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much saw the scripture and taught taught us the scripture as a as a gift, as a precious gift, uh, yeah. not a weapon. So yeah. that's kind of that's the shorter. Oh, I, wow. I can go longer, but I, well, and we'll you just might, have to edit it out. Yeah, well, well, I don't know if we'll edit it. It's really, really good stuff. And we'll dive in. So, I mean, oh. yeah, some of us are aware that your last name is Wilkie. <laughs> and, and, and and even me <laughs> and and that there there is um there's great history and legacy i would say from the wilkie family so what was it like and some of us mm -hmm. might need to know what it you know who your parents are were and 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 um and yeah we might want to hear some of that so uh yeah i uh when I was a senior, uh, after I graduated from college that, that year, my father was elected a bishop of the church and mm -hmm. served as bishop of Arkansas for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, even, uh, my parents began developing the Disciple Bible Study series. Uh, and um, it was because my father was pastor of a, a large downtown church in Wichita, Kansas, and they wanted a thousand people in Sunday school. That was the goal. Mm. And um, they hit that goal. I want to go on record. Because you could in that. This was 35 years ago um, that they hit that goal. Um, and it was because they found every way possible to help lay people lead Sunday school classes. So the impetus for disciple Bible study was my dad saying to a layman in the church, it was a strong layman, I think he was an attorney. Uh, I know he was an attorney. And my my dad said, I need you to leave. I want you to help start a new Sunday school class. And the layman said, oh, preacher, I don't know the Bible well enough. Mm -hmm. Well, if I were to, uh, just a quick editorial aside, one of the things that is really plaguing our denomination is we stopped knowing the Bible again. We, mm. we relinquished it. And I think uh, the LGBTQ community assumed the Bible had nothing good to say mm -hmm. and, and, and so swam, swam away or, yeah. or, or, or veered away, you know, because of the clobber passages, we didn't see the good passages and mm -hmm. we didn't contact, put things in context. So I did grow up uh, the youngest child of, uh, of uh, Dick and Julia Wilkie. Um, and I, uh, but my dad wasn't elected a bishop till I'd graduated from college. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to grow up 
in that world. Yeah. Uh, uh, I actually joined the Peace Corps and left the country for the first <laughs> two years of that. I was gone. Yeah. So that was good. Um, but I think it then when as I as my own career developed, um, you know, at first you're going, oh, I do not want um, I don't want to have that baggage hanging over me as I try to make my own way and be my own person. Mm -hmm. um, but one of my favorite stories, uh, so Dallas became the world I worked in. I led a Methodist missionary mission in Dallas mm -hmm. um, owned by the uh, formerly known as United Methodist Women, now United, United Women in Faith um, in Dallas. And um, I knew I was speaking 70, 80 times a year trying to raise money for our little mission and get the word out, do our thing. And so I knew North Texas. And my dad was a, at a board of trustees meeting for Southern Methodist University. And um, he met a woman who was a major shaker and mover, chair of the board for SMU. And he introduces himself and he, so he said, she said, oh, are you Sarah Wilkie's father? <laughs> I know if you're on the podcast, you cannot see me waving my arms in the air in joy, but it was the first time it wasn't, oh, are you Dick Wilkie's daughter? Uh, it was uh, the other way around. And my dad said, well, I guess I found my niche in Nashville. So I am, I am uh, only your, yeah, I, you know, it was great. It was yeah. like a fun moment for us. But um, I, I did grow up in a bit of a bubble. Mm -hmm. um, my mother um, was very, very um, intentional about creating safe space in our home. Mm. Very nurturing, very, you can let your hair down. You don't have to hold your breath in that someone's going to criticize something or whatever. And because there was a time uh, we literally had a parsonage with an adjoining sidewalk to the church. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, people would just walk into your home as if it was theirs because theoretically it was, but... Mm. Boundaries, mm -hmm. <laughs> boundaries, people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, grew up. But as a preacher's kid, the, the, when you're little, it's great because you can always run over to the church and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it was your playground. Mm -hmm. um, but as a, as you got older, and luckily as we got older, uh, we didn't live next door to the church. There was a little bit more freedom. But my mom created the safe space. And to be honest, none of the four of us were particularly um, rebellious. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's just not our nature or if it's our mother um, just making it safe to be all of who you were. Yeah. 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 So. Wow. And within your family, the, the, your siblings, are all four of you still connected to ministry on some level? Yeah. yeah. Um, so my oldest brother is the, uh, executive director for the Institute for Discipleship. Mm -hmm. So years ago, I don't know, 20 years ago, my parents endowed this institute at Southwestern College uh, in Winfield, Kansas, uh, the Institute for Discipleship. And my brother ran it as a volunteer for years, and then he retired and became executive director. Um, and that's where we're developing um, Bible study and Christian small group study yeah. opportunities. Yeah. And they have been for 20 years, but now we've done the app and we'll talk mm -hmm. about that probably mm -hmm. then. Uh, and then my next brother's uh, clergy serves in Topeka, Kansas, and mm -hmm. his congregation just became a reconciling congregation. So Way cool. Proud of him. Uh, my sister's married to a United Methodist pastor, Rob Fuquay in Indianapolis, Indiana, mm -hmm. and his his congregation is very inclusive and, and uh, progressive, uh, but also a mainstream 6,000 member 
church in Indianapolis. So yeah. he's got a lot to say grace over. And, um, and me. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've served as a lay person in ministry from mission, mission to publishing to yeah. camp and retreat. I mean, I've kind of done a little of everything. And I, I want to talk about that, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, was there, I, mean, I, I know a lot of PKs, um, and not all, not all preachers' kids, um, even in our, you know, system, really sort of emerge as deeply engaged in the life of the church. Um, and, and we all find our path, right? Like, but it seems that the four of you, um, to the degree that the, Sometimes the church doesn't always know boundaries. Mm -hmm. The church seemed to still be a space that you all wanted to really bring your gifts. I'm curious, like, did that, was that just because of the the, the, the family and like just the way that the tenor of the family or was there other things like just happened at all four of you landed? Yeah, uh, well, I don't think anything just happens right. uh, per se. Um, I, I should step back and say my oldest brother, Steve, who leads the Institute, is married to a United Methodist clergy, so uh, <laughs> she, she became a pastor later, mm -hmm. um, so we, we really have circled all the wagons around it. But, um, I, you know, I get asked this a lot, usually just in a one-on-one -on -one in an elevator or something, like, how is it that you are still involved in the church as a preacher's kid when that, you know, um, I... I'm not quite sure. Again, I go back to the people in the pew hmm. who nurtured us through those years. I, I have to give them credit um, because we had so many people who, you know, they would, they just, they'd pay attention to, in the little towns, they'd pay attention to whatever you were doing in school or sports or whatever. And in the bigger places, they just uh, celebrated what you were doing in the church. If you were in the choir or whatever, yeah. they'd come and support the choir concert or the whatever. Um, I do think my mother was, uh, I, I, and I, it's not like my father was unintentional, but you can imagine my father was running mm -hmm. with his tongue hanging out, yeah. you know, trying yeah. to both develop disciple. We call that our fifth child uh, <laughs> in the family because really it sucked up a lot of our time. Mm. Uh, my folks spent a good decade developing one, two, three, and four. And, um, you know, there were holidays yeah. where you'd go, where'd dad just go? Oh, he's yeah. got to get back to writing. And you're like, well, I'm only home for 48 hours, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but he was trying to bust it. So, uh, bust it out. Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think that, gosh, you know, that's such a hard question because mm -hmm. I don't know why we were able to hold it all together. I will tell you, even now, my mother's passed away in 2016. My father's 93, and um, it's up to us four kids to to manage this family that mm -hmm. we have, and it's large. Mm -hmm. uh, my siblings were uh, they procreated, and <laughs> now their children are procreating. So we're getting bigger all the time. But we are intentional. Mm -hmm. We're intentional about resolving conflict. Mm -hmm. We're intentional about uh, engaging the conflict if it needs to be engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came out, I came out to every member of my family. One, one. Oh. It was my wife says, "Did you have to have such a big family?" Because I insisted we go and sit down and talk it through. Mm. And um, but I didn't want any triangulating. I, I told my parents at the same time, I didn't get want to get caught in the, oh, don't tell your dad or, oh, don't tell your mom trap. That mm -hmm. happens to so many 
gay kids and uh, uh, LGBTQ folks, it's like, I mean, some things you can't hide, but I, I could hide. I was 27 years old. I mean, I didn't know I was hiding, frankly, but that's a whole different story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, we are we are intentional about holding this family together, mm -hmm. and we believe. And we, my parents, what they taught us most of all was Jesus is my north. Mm -hmm. And that's an East Stanley Jones statement. Mm. That's all East Stanley Jones. If you don't know East Stanley Jones, you need oh. to know his legacy. Yeah. Um, but Jesus is my north, mm. and that is how we have all lived our lives. Wow! Oh my gosh. You're doing a lousy job of giving short answers. So. No, you're doing great because this is a long form podcast, so more words versus less. Okay. Yeah, All right. yeah, yeah. Well. good. Real good. Um, so, well, so listeners, we love you if you're still here. Oh, they're still here. They're still here. So, you, knowing a little bit of your biography, um, you have served in so many different spaces throughout um, the UMC. Um, and, and some very inside of it and some, you know, sort of uh, uh, adjacent to it. Um, but as a layperson. Yeah. As a layperson. And, 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 and I, even as I was looking over some of your biography, um, it, it, I think some would wonder like, wow, like I wonder if Sarah ever had a, a call to clergy orders or to ordained ministry. Like you're so, devoted to the life of the church and to disciple making and to the work of justice. I mean, it's like, it's what we United Methodists do. Did you have a moment where you discerned, yes, and I'm gonna do all of this as a lay person or is that just the- um, I, So when I was in junior high or so, I think, uh, I remember writing a note to myself of uh, some of my life expectations. I was way too young to do that, but I did it anyway. And I tucked it under my mattress and it, it was be a missionary mm. because my, some of my formative years were in Salina, Kansas. And back in the day, Salina, Kansas was in the heart of the US and the highways went right through there. And so all of our missionaries who were home on their leave where they would go and talk, you know, they'd come home every so many years, they'd come home and spend months, if not a year, touring and raising the money for their next mission stint. Yeah. And they would stay in our home. Um, and uh, I just was enamored and I, I mean some of the missionaries I got to grow up meeting and they'd come through and, and mm -hmm. uh, Bishop Mortimer Arias from uh, Bolivia mm -hmm. um, would read me the funnies sitting on his lap when I was a kid <laughs> and you're talking about this amazing liberation theologian uh, leader um, and he, they'd get thrown out you know the politics would sway and they'd mm -hmm. get thrown out and so they'd come live with us yeah. Um, the mission was always my call. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I never, and I'm grateful because, of course, if I had been called to preach uh, from the, I, I preached, I preached a million sermons, but I wasn't called to be an ordained clergy person. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I had been, I, you know, I have many friends who weren't able to fulfill that call in the United Methodist Church. And that, yeah. that would have been heartbreaking yeah. and it was yeah. heartbreaking to lose so many friends uh, to have to find another denomination. Absolutely. But um, uh, yeah, for me, it was, it was never a call to be clergy. It was always a call to be mission. Yeah. And, uh, and then I joined the Peace Work as a friend uh, of our families who was with Global Ministries said, well, why don't you try the Peace Corps first? Because 
it was kind of painful. You graduate from college and you think you know something. He's like, well, since you don't really have any skills, um, <laughs> why don't you join the Peace Corps first and let's see if you get some skills. Hmm. And it was a brilliant thing. And I had a great experience, but I came home and um, was trying to decide my next move and was uh, given an opportunity to interview with Wesley Rankin Community Center in Dallas, mm -hmm. which was a Hispanic community center. Uh, and um, uh, I got to lead for 14 years that ministry. Um, and it's, uh, it's been, a, that's probably one of the most formative things I've ever done. It was very hard and yet, you know, uh, I, my patron saint, so to speak, is Thomas, mm -hmm. because Thomas, uh, it's a, you know, it's a put, put your hands in wounds and know that I am God. Yeah. And that's been the way I saw my life in mission was if I put my, the deeper into the wounds of our world, I put my hands, the closer I encountered Jesus. Yeah. Um, and it was precious. And so it was painful, but it was precious. And um, yeah, well, so I don't know if I'm answering. No, no, you're doing great. My this point. Is great. Yes. Know. So, ask this: What is, is there anything that's still with you from that time at Wesley Rankin that, like, that that you know, like, no matter what spaces you walk into, this this is these are things that I'm still holding on to from that time there. Oh well, my godson's mm -hmm. on a plane to. Spain today, and <laughs> he's a result of my best friend coming out of that experience and mm. my godson. So that's one thing. I've been praying for him all day. Be safe. Yeah, he's a grown man, but he's still, <laughs> still my nene. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, uh, oh, I I gather uh, as often as I can with uh, people that experienced that with me. Mm -hmm. um, I experienced it with them. I'm Facebook friends with a lot of the kids. Mm -hmm. who've now become adults and have their own children and even mm -hmm. grandchildren. Um, I, I, that is formative for me. I'm still mm -hmm. very, uh, and now I was there so long that when you, you can almost end up with founder syndrome in nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So I did give new, new leadership at space. It's been years. And, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I absolutely learned so much mm -hmm. and I learned this is, kind of off topic, but my sister was the youth director of, a, of Highland Park United Methodist Church, which is, I don't know, it used to be 10 or 12,000 12, members in, mm -hmm. in Dallas, right next to the SMU campus. And here I was in this little mission in the inner city. And she actually had more tragic death in her first few years than I did, partly because I just didn't know the youth well enough yet. Mm. But partly because we forget that regardless, and oh, I should have said Highland Park, it's next to SMU. It's a very high income yeah. congregation. But those kids are committing suicide. Those kids are living under other challenges. Those kids are cracking their cars up, drinking and driving or drive, you know, whatever. Um, my kids uh, then I, I did bury a lot of children. Uh, painful, painful loss of both from, from gang. I, I, there was a moment, I'm just babbling, you're going to have to edit this, but there was a moment uh, when the Columbine shootings took place, I became an expert evidently in youth violence. Hmm. And so I was on all these programs talking about youth violence, which was a little bit offensive to me because I'd been dealing with youth violence for years, but until Columbine, yeah. Colorado, mm -hmm. white kids started shooting yeah. each other. It, it, it didn't 
Yeah. And I'm not diminishing the pain in Columbine in any way. There's it no also became newsworthy. It's, it became and but, then we need my to kids were to, being killed. Yeah. It didn't catch right. anyone's attention. Mm -hmm. My kids being my community center kids. Um, I went to bail a kid out of jail one time and I said, I think you have one of my kids here. And they looked at me like, no, no, we don't. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, you do. And I didn't realize that my language was confusing them because mm. um, he was a college student and I was not that much older than he was, so, but he was also African-American. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't figure out how the one, it was a small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they had one kid in jail and he was, you know, a 20, 21 year old um, semi-heavyweight boxer, mm. um, African-American kid. They didn't think he was mine. So that was funny, but yeah, sorry. No, no. <laughs> Do I bring anything with me, my brother? It is in my cells mm. and I will tell you um, and I don't think we do this enough as a church, but I realized way later in life that we don't put in any, any, we aren't, we don't intentionally consider how much PTSD our mission workers, mm. our clergy who are facing trauma all the time have, I can no longer serve on a jury because it doesn't matter what the caseload is, whatever they bring before me. I had a panic attack and had to be released from a jury. It's a longer story, I have a whole sermon on it. Mm. Because the trial was going to be a child abuse situation that I had lived from the perspective of the family that lost mm. the infant. Mm. I could not do that. Yeah. And, uh, I will say when you when they ask, have you ever been a victim of crime? I went, no. And then some lady says, I got my car stolen. I said, oh, is that a crime? Is that a deal? <laughs> oh, well, I've had my car stolen several times. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you know, but if, if you if you compartmentalize, which mm -hmm. in ministry we do, mm -hmm. we compartmentalize because we have to function. And frankly, in the gay community. Uh, in the LGBTQ community, we have to compartmentalize because yeah. we have to function mm -hmm. in this world. Mm -hmm. And so if you, uh, you know, as we try to integrate those things, it's lovely, but it's, we're only human and it takes us, it, it takes yeah. a lot of work to integrate all of that. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, anyway, yes, I bring Wesley Rankin yeah. with me in every breath I take. I really appreciate that. Um, for so many reasons, what they're just, it resonates with me. You're in campus um, ministry. I mean, yeah, the whole life. And, and a man and, of color. And, I mean. And, and, and the compartmentalization, uh, it being in ourselves that, and yeah. and that's how you answered the question. Um, you bring all these stories with you. You bring these faces with you. Um, and these moments where you're the one showing up at the prison. Yeah. Um, oh, well. <laughs> I had my number. I still yeah. have the same phone number. It was my oh, pager wow. number, and I still have it to this day. I carried it with me because it hasn't happened in a few, probably six or eight years, but because it's been a long time since I was there, mm -hmm. 20 years. But I would get a call on Mother's Day every now and then. <sighs> and um, I don't have my own children, but it when a kid calls you and says, hey, I was hoping this was still your number because I just want to thank you. Um, for filling in this gap for me, and you know, you don't. I didn't. I wasn't going to give. It. I've had different jobs who said, "Oh, we we can't transfer that number over." So then, I I don't want your phone. I, I don't. I, I, this is my this is my number. 
And mm -hmm. uh, so I've kept it all these years since 19, probably 90, 91. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sarah, take us on the journey. Um, Wesley Rankin, and then that takes you to. Oh, you want me to do the journey of my yeah, career? I can yeah. do this pretty fast. I won't belabor it. But uh, so I was offered uh, the opportunity to serve on the extended cabinet in North Texas as the director of urban strategies mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and had an amazing experience there. It was one of those moments where I was either I knew that I either needed to stay at Wesley Rankin for the rest of my career because, mm -hmm. you know, if you stay too long at the fair, you better see it through. Yeah. And um, or it was and I was kind of hungering for a, a, a bigger canvas to paint on. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I was very happy where I was. So it was a touch. But my wife was ready to step out of her. She'd been kind of carrying the financial burden um, for us. And um, she was in kind of a trying time in her career. She's a journalist. That should tell you everything mm -hmm. you need to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she was ready to step out and uh, do other things. And mm -hmm. so uh, we made the decision that this would be the best thing for both me and for our family, for mm -hmm. us. And um, so I became uh, I became the director of urban strategies for the North Texas Conference for four years. Mm -hmm. And about two years into it, I realized that um, Bishop Oden, Bishop Bill Oden was my bishop and he was great. But I realized he was offered, he kept putting job opportunities in front of me and I realized I was on a grant and he was retiring and I went, oh, oh, wait, I left a very secure job for a four year gig. And so I went and did an MBA at SMU. I decided if I was going to go big or go home. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided to go and get an MBA because I I wanted to stay in nonprofit. But I had I just know nonprofits, all of our church ministries. Hmm. The last thing we do is run them well and right. uh, in, in financially. That's mm -hmm. our fiscal is our last you know, you, 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 anyway, so I did that and um, that opened the door for me to be the CEO of the United Methodist Reporter. Um, and I did that and loved it. I, so uh, I want to back up and say my deal with God from the moment I put that under my mattress that said I want to be in mission. My deal with God was, dear God, I really don't want to knock on doors. So, but if you open a door, I'll go through it. So whatever you put in front of me, if I feel like it's truly of you, I will go through the door. Yeah. And so I left Wesley Rankin because I felt like it was a God thing. And then I uh, did the reporter and I was there and then uh, was asked to consider uh, applying for the uh, world editor and publisher of the upper room. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And then um, that uh, was for, five or six years mm. and then um, became the executive director at Scarrett Bennett Center mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was there for five or six years. I'm not good at time, y'all. <laughs> Sorry. I, I didn't I didn't look it up. Yeah. And then uh, stepped out. I felt like I had managed people and property and up mm -hmm. <laughs> boards of directors and all of that managing. It's exhausting. Yeah. And uh, so now I don't manage anyone but myself. I don't get paid anymore, but I, I uh, just um, work with my siblings and we're doing this Disciple Bible Study app. And um, yeah, well, it's a Bible. It's a, it's a study app, but right now it only has Disciple Bible on it. Yeah. So that's why. So when I'm I may have here, missed something in there. I don't remember. But oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we met when I was at the upper room, right? Yeah. And um, 
uh, I met you at an event. I think it was in Texas. Or no, maybe, it was. Oh, 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 you're right. Maybe I, we I met. Think, okay. I think that's where we where, where, where we. well, where I saw you. Okay. The first time I saw you, and I think you were talking about leadership development. And I don't know if that's exactly what you were talking about, but I walked into this this space where you were leading, and you were developing leaders in that in that room. And one of the things I heard you say in that space, and um, later on you come and do an event yeah. um, with me and my team in Miami, but I heard you say in that space, friends, it's time to put your big girl panties on. <laughs> um, and I just, I, it was, it was a, a call to really like, for me, settle the issues about like, am I a leader, am I not a leader? Am I, am I doing this or that? And for a young campus minister, um, who did not feel called to clergy orders, um, was in the closet at the time, but was had things in my hands that I needed to lead. You were a person that sort of said, stop playing around with this, like, come on. Um, and you, when you came and did that event for us, it was an event with young people and mostly, um, so many of my team members were in that room. Um, and it wasn't just the sessions that you led, but it was the, the way you engage the young adults, um, it it all it forced all of us to like put our big girl panties on. <laughs> um, I mean, it just forced us to grow up. It forced it it, it called us. I don't want to say forced. It called us to really live into our callings and our gifts and what we felt like God was asking of us. Um, that was probably twelve years ago now. That, that and yet I can tell you we are that circle of people we still talk about Sarah Wilkie. Oh. Um, so my question in these different spaces that you have led and worked and 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 operated, what holds us back from really leading, especially laity, but also those who find themselves in marginalized positions, what what holds us back from really stepping into the room, being ready to lead with confidence? Wow. Um, take a second here. You know, I we have so many people who surround us in life and tell us we can't do it. Hmm. And I, I'm blessed. I, I was able to play basketball just after Title IX began. And our coach used to circle the free throw line with the whole team and make you shoot free throws with them yelling at you mm. to prepare for in the stands, which girls basketball in the seventies didn't have a lot of people in the stands, but still, mm -hmm. uh, but that was, and you know, I think we, we have lots of people who are around us telling us we can't do it sometimes. And I think we have to, to, to push those voices out. Mm-hmm and embrace what we can do. And, you know, it used to be you needed to shore up your weaknesses. That was the way it was always said. And now there's this kind of move that says, find other people to do what you're weak in because it's their strength. Yeah. And lead yeah. from your strength. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was sort of, uh, I have to say, and I'm, I'm going to give my mom a lot of credit. And uh, I had an amazing mother. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's so blessed. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm aware of that. But I had this amazing mother who made sure that we didn't do shame in our home. Hmm. It just wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And if you, even those put down jokes from 
when we were kids, you know, this with the ears so low you could crawl crawl under a snake with a top hat on. Remember those jokes mm -hmm. that kind of went out? Maybe you don't. If you don't, I'll try to dig up more. But that was the one. <laughs> that was kind of my go-to. You're so low you could crawl under a snake with a. My mom wouldn't have it, and her line in our home was, "You have the whole world to put you down." So as a family, we're going to build each other up, mm. and that's how she lived it. Um, so in the leadership realm. Not everyone's called to stand in the pulpit for 10,000 people. That's yeah. true. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are all called to bring our A game, not our B game, bring mm. our A game, mm -hmm. uh, uh, give our best fruits. So, you know, everybody worries about whether the tithe is on your net or your gross. And that's not just about money. Wow. But if we're going to tithe our best, I'm thinking we ought to do it on our gross. Mm. Uh, if we, if you're doing it on your net, that really means you're giving Caesar the first 10%. So mm. no, mm. God gets the first 10%, whether that's your time, your heart, your prayer, your presence, your gifts or your service. So that's kind of, for me, the whole leadership paradigm is what are you doing with the gifts God's given you? And whether it's put your, I was kind of hoping you know, I had this great saying I used to say when I did leadership things. I said, now the only thing you leave when you move from one job to the next is your integrity. So when you put what you pack in your briefcase is your integrity. I thought, I thought that was always a good line. But no, you pull out the big girl. <laughs> sure, thanks. That, that one was um, good, too. Yeah. yeah. Was good too. Well, yeah. you know, integrity is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, leadership demands integrity. Yeah. And um, uh, but but really just to own your space. Yeah. And we've talked about that a little bit here. Mm -hmm. uh, I have young women who come up to me and uh, I particularly have used this with young women if own your space. Mm -hmm. Now, people who are marginalized, I want to go ahead and say something here. I grew up a white, middle-class, highly educated woman. Mm. I also came into leading a not-for-profit with a name recognition. Mm. It is, I had so much privilege walking into that role. Mm. Uh, I could afford to take the job. I, in, you may have picked me first of your three on the list or not, we'll never know. But I know for a fact they offered the job to five other people who turned it down because the wage was so low. Mm. But I had my savings from the Peace Corps because Peace Corps puts a little money away for you. And I'm such a tightwad. None of my Peace Corps friends could believe it, but I actually came home with money in the bank because I mm. was such a tightwad. Mm -hmm. And I came home and I had no college debt because back mm -hmm. in that day, you could actually go to college without debt. And... Um, my grandparents had given us a little bit of money. So I had enough to get a little used car. When I came back from the Peace Corps, I had a little used car and uh, a little bit of savings, not a lot, but mm -hmm. I always had family support of something. You know, if I'd had a major medical issue, I didn't even have health insurance. Well, if you were a person with any debt, you could not have taken that job. Yeah. yeah. If you had a family, mm -hmm. I was working 24 seven, seven days a week because I had nothing else to draw my attention. Yeah. So I was 23 years old, had all the time in the world. So privilege beyond belief. Hmm. And so I'm very protective of um, particularly women of color. No offense, but that's yeah. where I've spent most mm -hmm. of my, this, this process in my heart and head is women of color who know very much the needs of their community. And 
don't have the uh, the Rolodex, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, contacts, the name recognition. So people look at me at 23 in my little blue Navy suit I got at Dillard's and uh, write me a check for a thousand dollars to for my thing. Mm -hmm. If you don't look like them and they don't know your pedigree, they go, oh, that's a great idea. You should build a board of directors. Well, will you be on my board? Oh, no. My board, oh, prestigious to be, you know, because I was building it up and I yeah. have the United Methodist Women's Support out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, friends, we cannot say enough. If you're not engaged with the United Women in Faith, join nationally. Mm -hmm. Engage. Yeah. And women, are. this is our legacy from our grandmothers and our great grandmothers. And I'm about you, but I don't just leave inheritance sitting on the table. Come on. And I'm inheriting this, both the work and the gifts and assets of, of all of yeah. that. We need to be paying attention because we have real, real stuff there. So yeah. just at a yes. really glad you said a that. lot of, a lot of people have, have had a life because of the work of the United Methodist women. So anyway, yeah. I, I digressed. No, uh, no which that's I do. very, very good. Um, where were we? We come? were talking about leadership. Oh, and, leadership. And, and, but well, you, that would lead to the United Women in Faith. Yeah, that yeah. Leadership. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, and I'm jumping around a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this flyer for Be a Disciple yeah. uh, Study app. And I'm, it's just sort of profound to me that your parents write this curriculum, Disciple. Bible study, and it's almost like you are in a very similar way taking that that inheritance and legacy and moving it forward. Um, I don't know is that what it feels like, or is or no, is it? Oh no, the burden of it is huge mm -hmm. because no one expected three million people to take disciple Bible study. Three million. Well, that's people. the number we've been given yeah. for years and years. Actually. Yeah, and it's in countries all over the world. It's that's a dumb statement, isn't it? Countries <laughs> only all over the world. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, it, uh, it's in, I don't know how many languages, uh, we, we built the app. Uh, we've done a couple of things. If, if we want to talk about that yeah. for a second, mm -hmm. it's be a disciple study app.com. If you leave off the word app, you'll end up at the be a disciple site, which is also with the Institute, but that's a distance learning mm -hmm. on Blackboard and it's a different, it's more for people who want to get a certificate in youth, uh, ministry or um, uh, lay speakers mm -hmm. or or you can do disciple on it and there's lots of wonderful classes you can go look at that but we're talking today about be a disciple app.com right. mm -hmm. we built this app because of a couple of things one um, we realized particularly in COVID although we had started thinking about this early on mm -hmm. but zoom kind of allowed us I mean, there were some things that came out of COVID that have been a blessing zoom mm -hmm. being one of them mm -hmm. all these people who were cut off you know shut-ins aren't just the elderly right shut-ins are also young moms with children they need to put to bed mm -hmm. or uh people like me who don't really like to drive at night mm -hmm. i i never had good vision didn't have anything with my age I'm just night vision and i aren't good friends mm -hmm. uh and i go to a church that's way across town so zoom has been a gift it, it, zoom one Christmas, that was our Christmas as a family, right? Was yeah. we were zooming 
uh, um, we were all making Christmas cookies and showing each other and voting on Zoom. Anybody else do this kind of thing? Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. seeing nods in this room. If mm -hmm. you're out there in the air, uh, you can nod. So um, we built this app to do two things. We wanted a what we believe in more than anything and what is the most true of Disciple Bible Study is the small group experience is transformational. Hmm. So the content's great, but the small group experience is transformational. And a lot of times we want to just do four and six week studies and we'll have lots of those on the app at some point, but by being in disciple for 20 now we've, so we're using disciple fast track, which is 24 weeks instead of 34 mm -hmm. disciple. One was 34 weeks, yeah. 35 years ago, you would go to somebody else in the church's home or hosted in your home and 12 people would gather around your TV and watch on the VCR. It was the first product out of the publishing house to use the VCR. To use it, yeah. So it's it, 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 it was a cutting edge Whoa. whole thing, yeah. And you'd watch the scholar give their talk. Reverend Zan Holmes would open it up. And um, Reverend Dr. Zan Holmes, mm -hmm. uh, who's amazing and his voice is oh, the best. <laughs> and uh, then you'd watch the scholar video and then you'd begin, and it was two, two and a half hours. It was elite. And this was every week for 34 weeks. Right. And, you know, it's it, there's an audible, huh? Yeah. Uh, so my sister, who's a Christian educator uh, about eight years ago, I think, reduced it down to um, tw uh, 24 weeks. Mm -hmm. And she made 12 weeks in the Old Testament, 12 weeks in the New, because it was always Old Testament, New Testament. Now we have taken it and we've made it. So and what I love about the app is two things that really I think I've said two things 30 times on That's here. Fun. People are going to laugh. But um <laughs> The app allows you to engage with your group throughout the week, which when you do a weekly study at your church, you come in on Tuesday and you discuss what you read for the last week and you see each other next week. Here we have a prayer wall where you're constantly in prayer with one another, as, as constant as you want to look at your app. Um, and you can turn off those notifications, but we really encourage people to please notify. Uh, we have a message board. Uh, we found that a lot of times the group discussion would end, but somebody would say, oh, there's a book. I'm going to post that on the message board. Hey, this is an article I read or a book I read about this, or I did some research after the fact, and you might want to know this. Um, so it's that engagement every day throughout mm -hmm. the week if you want to be. There's a, a human condition, and then the discussion question kicks it off. And that discussion question throughout the week, sometimes people will come in a second time or even a third time and say, ooh, I just read what so-and-so wrote that. I, I, I see it this way too. And there's a conversation that takes place yeah, there. Yeah. Um, there's also everything, everything you used to do in disciple when you got to the meeting besides read was, you know, you did a lot of research together. You watched the scholar videos. No, you do all of that before you get into the conversation. So the mm -hmm. meetings are an hour and 15 minutes for disciple one, an hour and 30 minutes for disciple two, because there's a spiritual formation component to disciple two. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's all on zoom. We also said our clergy are exhausted. Mm-hmm. We as lay people can lead these. Yeah. Now some clergy want to. My church has been through a lot of clergy turnover. We got blown away in the tornado. My pastor wanted to lead it because he said there's a lot of people who I don't know yet. Yeah. I've only been here six. Well, now he's been there maybe a year. But you know, when you have you don't we're we're worshiping in a school, so mm -hmm. we don't have that continuity. So he wants to get to know the congregation. But you have this daily interaction. You have um, 
the assignments are read too. It's all on audible or on audio, or mm -hmm. you can text speech to text. You can do all these things. We just made it incredibly accessible. And one of the great things they used to sell at the publishing house were bags to carry your disciple book and manual. And, you know, people lug it. And I, people say, oh, I was going to the airport. I had my disciple bag with all my stuff. Well, now it's in my phone. Yeah. Everything's in my phone. All my answers are there. All my questions are there. Everything's there. And I can use my iPad. It's on every platform. Um, it's in beta. So it's mm -hmm. still a little glitchy, friends. It's like yep. glitchy. Yep. But we're working them out hard and fast. And our developer is in, in, is in Jakarta, Indonesia. But he's a disciple grad from that was a bishop. My parents started these bishop scholars at Southwestern College, bringing kids from all over the world into Winfield, Kansas to get their college degree. Uh, mostly bishops kids at first, but then it became kids of uh, that the bishop would recommend mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. up and comer leaders in their conference. And this young man went back to Indonesia and built the number one app in Asia uh, a few years ago. And so we asked him to help build this for us. So it's all very um, connectional. Yeah. Oh gosh. So anyway, Sarah, there's so many things that I want to ask you about and we have run out of time in this space, but Everything that we've talked about so far, it's just um, your story. Um, I'll speak for myself as a gay man. Your story um, has, and just watching you, um, just giving me fuel to keep going. Um, that um, even as our church is still on its journey to perfection, um, and we find ourselves in the church in this moment where to the degree that we've been included, there's still vast amounts of work that still needs to be done and harm that we have compartmentalized and are still working through. And, and even these last few years of disaffiliations and, and to see you walk into convocation, um, you're still here. You're still here as a as uh, Reverend Pamela Leitzie told us today, um, and your you being here has just been an inspiration to me for sure. But I I've, I've got I know a group of students out of Florida. They're not students anymore. They're all old like me. But <laughs> um, a group of students out of Florida. Um, the the work that you did through Upper Room. I mean, just countless number of folks across the planet, um, people that I know that because you invited them to make bring a devotion, like just deeply impacted by those. You know, there's so many things. So I am going to reach out to you for part two. And anybody who knows Bar of the Conference knows this is a long form podcast. So we literally just got started. Um, and that's just the way that it is. So, um, but thank you for sharing your story today um, and, and just being the inspirational leadership that particularly many of us in the queer community and the church have needed. So thank you. And can we thank, thank God. Sarah. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.